0: This episode of Working Lunch is fueled by Valentine's Day Pizza Franklin. We got some companies that are stealing your annual heart-shaped pizza and taking it nationwide. Did you know that you were such a an influencer in the restaurant industry? I did, Joe. I absolutely did. Well, is that lucky lady getting her normal Domino's She's heart-shaped pizza so try
1: new one? She's tried so hard to break this tradition and like this year there were she even wanted to do the eating at home. She was giving in on that, but like Publix had like heart-shaped steaks or Whole Foods or Fresh Market, I don't remember who. She was like, Why don't we do this? I was like, Honey, no. First off, we gotta keep the tradition strong. But two, our listener base at the working lunch would be would be heartbroken. So, yep, we'll be keeping the, the tradition going on. I will pay twice as much for a non-Valentine's Day dinner on uh, another
0: Saturday or Friday night.
1: But yeah, we'll be at home. Papa John's, get ready. We're calling you up. We're looking for that hard shape.
0: Since Valentine's is on Monday, we are kind of sort of doing it on Sunday. I'm going to a Valentine's jazz brunch and uh, getting my getting my my trombone and my sax on,
1: man. And is that is that? Do you want me to insert the the? old man jokes now or are you going to do polka polka or, <laughs> or like light jazz, Beer barrel light brunch. you know what you, what you going for I,
0: I walked right into it but it sounds it sounds heavenly to me so uh, that's how I, i'll pre-game for the super bowl at brunch and then roll right into super bowl so there you go but on that happy note let's do the show May I help you? we need to talk about your flair i think i'm gonna have to go superside Vice President speaking. Come on, man. With all due respect, that's a bunch of malarkey. From the home office of Align Public Strategies in downtown Orlando, Florida, this is Working Lunch. Coming up on the podcast, major Democratic governors are breaking with the president and pumping the brakes on mask mandates in their states. With the general public fatigued by COVID-related restrictions, the politics of the issue are evolving. We'll talk about what this means for operators and other health and safety issues going forward. And surprise, surprise, the U.S. Congress can actually agree on something. In an overwhelmingly bipartisan vote, both the House and Senate this week passed sweeping legislation that would forbid clauses in employment contracts requiring workers to litigate sexual harassment and abuse cases in private rather than in a court of law. We'll talk about the impacts of ending mandatory arbitration clauses for sexual harassment claims. And new data from California suggests progressives lost key parts of their political bases when they were trying to push back on Uber and Lyft's business models. What does that mean for the other states trying to reclassify those drivers as employees and not independent contractors? We'll take a look. We'll discuss those issues and wrap it up with a legislative scorecard. Hi, everybody. and Welcome to the show. I'm Joe Kefauver, along with my line Public Strategies partner, Franklin Coley and Franklin... Some hot news out of D.C. this week. We'll talk about them in, in order. But there was a little meeting at the uh, National Governors Association. A couple gubs went down to the White House, had a little one off with uh, the president. And lo and behold, we got a bunch of Democratic governors saying no moss, no moss on the mass. What's going on up there? I mean, the dam has broken open. It's been amazing in how short a time
1: period this has happened. It's been building forever. But Asa Hutchinson from Arkansas, who's term limited, very moderate Republican, who's been fairly centrist, even though his legislatures kind of pulled him him to the right. But he's been very centrist in his approach to the pandemic. Phil Murphy, the governor from New Jersey, who barely won re-election. And when his political folks went back and kind of ran the numbers, it became apparent that the issues bundled in the pandemic were were at play in him barely winning re-election. And uh, the New York Times, a daily podcast, did a, a, a great breakdown of like Phil Murphy's team and how they look back at the numbers. But those two governors went into President Biden's office and said, look, enough is enough. This is no longer a pandemic. This is now endemic in nature. And we need to adjust the way that we're approaching this. And that conversation, flew open the floodgates. Now, we'd had a bunch of swing governors, swing state governors like Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer, who's like changed her tune in the past six or 12 months after initially being very, very strong and kind of lockdowns has really loosened things up in the past six months. We've had a bunch of Democrat governors in kind of swing states that have been inching that direction. But now we've got all those really solid blue states. They're changing their tune. New Jersey, we already talked about Connecticut, California, Oregon, New York, Rhode Island, Illinois, they're all relaxing mass mandates. We've got this movement also to relax, not as widespread, but to relax vaccine mandates. So all these issues that we have operators have been like struggling with, mass mandates have been a pain that, you know, figuring out what you have to do and the customers and all You know, all this stuff that we've been dealing with during the pandemic, it looks like we're on the path to a lot of that stuff falling to the wayside as this becomes more of an endemic that we're dealing with through vaccinations. Now, a new variant could come along and change these dynamics. We know this. But for the time being, you know, let's not be foolish and think that a lot of these elected officials aren't looking towards the midterm elections. Right. But
0: but for the time being, it looks like a new day has come, Joe. So what so, Franklin, what what does that mean for operators? I mean, does it does it change? I mean, the the, the health and safety conversation doesn't end. And you see what's going on in the states with with so many states moving quickly in the paid leave space. Are governors from those same states? They're probably, in my estimation, would be probably uh, upsetting. That's probably the, the, the nicest word, upsetting some of their their base, some of their support. Do you think they'll try to get that back by being overly, you know, by being really industrious on the paid leave side and other types of programs to kind of fill the health and safety void? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me.
1: I I, I do think that that probably will be the case. And again, a new variant comes along it changes all these dynamics again. You know, Phil Murphy will tell his Democrat colleagues, like, you need to be a little more Ron DeSantis today than than you've been in the past, and and we're seeing that we're literally we're seeing that right now, and so I do think they will have to push their bona fides in uh, to your point in in kind of other categories with voters and moving out of the politics and into kind of the policy side, right you know, state and local have been enforcing a lot of this, but I, there's a lot of pressure on the Biden administration to pressure the federal agency, CDC included, to update the guidance, right? And so to change the national guardrails around the stuff as well. So it's a very interesting uh, couple weeks here
0: in this space. Yeah, you know, it is, it's, it's fascinating, the politics, you know, as a former resident of Arkansas. Uh, I knew, you know, Asa Hutchinson well during my tenure there, very close to Walmart, obviously. One of those kind and decent guys you'll ever meet in the world of politics. Uh, just a wonderful guy, but I never thought he would be considered the uh, moderate wing of the Republican Party. <laughs> I didn't even think such a world was ever possible, but pretty interesting stuff. And, uh, you know, again, it's, an, it's, a, it's a moving target. So operators need to stay on top of it and keep health and safety of their workers still top of mind. So good food for thought there. Well, Franklin, we have talked at length uh, not only about the Me Too movement and the repercussions for all of society, we talk about the restaurant industry in particular on on our podcast, the the beat goes on. The United States Senate and the House this week both approved legislation that we really didn't think we'd ever kind of see coming. What happened in D.C. on the sexual harassment front?
1: Well, as the House passed legislation banning sexual harassment claims from inclusion, or essentially voiding arbitration agreements as it relates to sexual harassment claims, I mean, I didn't see, you know, I didn't see this thing was going to fly through the Senate in the way that it did. And, you know, just because I guess, you know, you kind of get lazy and you feel like this is a little bit of an RD issue, right, because it's a workplace employment contract issue. And, you know, we're used to this stalemate in Washington, D.C., and No, sir. The U.S. House and the U.S. Senate just came together in a bipartisan manner and and passed what is a sweeping (laughs) piece of contract law, employment law, labor and employment workplace law. And that's amazing. I mean, that shows you kind of the political power of this issue and the political potence that the Me Too movement still has in American life, but also in in the political space. At the end of the day, there were clearly were enough Republicans that that were in the right place in this issue that in an election year, Mitch McConnell, you know, and others in leadership decided like we are not going to put force our people to vote on this and essentially be against this and go run for re-election. We're going to just quietly go and approve it and let it get done. And it'll be a non-issue in this election year. And maybe Mitch McConnell was there in his own in his own right. But certainly there were members within the Republican caucus that were saying, I'm voting for the," you know, pushing back. And and Mitch McConnell is not one that gets out ahead of his caucus. He just isn't. That's the way he's always that's why he's been such an effective leader. And um Clue, that's what happened here. This thing flew through the Senate in in no time, and now we have a, a you know a whole new kind of uh, area of national law, Joe. It's it's really amazing
0: to be honest. And that's you know that's that that is a Harvard case study of grassroots activism in a movement, and can make that much of a fundamental shift in all throughout employment law. So pretty 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 interesting.
1: And and this has been stepping back for a sec this has been an area of law where we've seen a ton of activity over the past few years, right? Going back to the Supreme Court, you know, upholding arbitration agreements. We had a rush of states that went and legislated in this space, and particularly as it relates to sexual harassment, potentially in conflict with federal law, and that pushed kind of the federal action. So we've had a ton of activity at the state level since the Me Too movement, but also more broadly in this space, arbitration is one part of a number of issues like non-competes and and other contractual instruments that have been very common in workplace law for many years that are now kind of under attack and under scrutiny. And you see elements of this in the PRO Act, right? You see elements of this in, in other parts of government. And at least in this case, the labor community has found a way to win on this. Now they're going to go into other things. They're going to, you know, those other elements, and they're probably going to find similar ways to approach those issues to win, at least at the state level. So, Joe, you are stepping back and kind of looking at this in the broader context. This is one of a number of elements of contract law that operators and companies have relied on for a very long time, that a lot of those are coming under scrutiny and question. And I think we can expect that we're going to lose some of those instruments in the near future you know maybe maybe in the coming months and years through federal agency action but but certainly at the state level so this is a hot area even though it's it's super in the weeds and you know highly litigious it's a hot area that labor advocates are continuing to target
0: well as listeners on this podcast will, will know we have spent a lot of time uh, talking about, Prop 22 in California, AB5, Uber, Lyft, employee cl- uh, classification, the future of work, and a whole body of law, policy, and politics and the evolution of that. Franklin, you you were quoting the other day, Uber and Lyft spent probably, you know, $100 million or more getting that ballot initiative passed in California. 200 plus. Getting their, their employees classified as independent contractors was a big win for them. There's some uh, recent research that has posted that was kind of looking at the vote, if you will, and the demographics and, you know, kind of doing research on what messages apply to whom and constituencies. And the researchers found that the Black and Latino community voted much stronger than the smart folks had anticipated to support Uber and Lyft in that effort. The results are kind of taking the labor community a little bit by surprise. They they assume that they're speaking for those constituencies, among others, what do, why why do you why why do you think that happened if if the, if the data is correct why would some core constituency groups like that vote for the Uber Lyft position that seems to be kind of anti worker I got a lot I'm gonna do a lot of speculating
1: on that Joe but just to make sure you know for people that are trying to find this online this is a report by the Berkeley Research Group, BRG, and it is Analysis of Voter Support of Prop 22 in California and Los Angeles County. They take a deep dive into LA County. Yeah. And this was done for uh, Chamber of Progress, which is like a progressive kind of Chamber of Commerce type, type group. So if you're Googling around, that's, that's where you find it. Joe, maybe you can throw an actual URL at them before the, the end of the conversation here. But as you dig into the numbers and report, as you said, it's super interesting like these margins that they break down, looking at Hispanic and African American voters, black voters, uh, you know, first off, the the ballotish of won basically in every major county, the the black and Hispanic vote. And by like, oh, here's one county where Alameda is the only county I see. Out of these major counties that are they're highlighting where the platforms lost the, the black vote everywhere else, I mean they crushed it. And I'm talking you're talking about like big 34 percent advantage in some margin in in some counties. Madeira County, 36. Kings, Kern, 34. I mean, big, big, big gaps. Big, big, big gaps. You know, I. The report doesn't get into all this, but I would speculate and I'm happy to email me or call me up and we can debate this. The unique nature of the app, and I suspect a lot of these are workers affiliated with the app or customers that use the app. And that direct line of communication between the platform and these voters was the differential here. You know, they spent a lot of money on traditional advertising and you know, online advertising, paid media, all that. Obviously there's a lot of earned media as well, billboards, like all that kind of stuff. But I suspect one of the big difference makers was that literal direct connection with a lot of the users on their platforms. And that's a distinct advantage that these these platforms have in the way that they can communicate to voters. We don't have as an industry First off, we don't leverage it, right? But even if we did and had the willingness and the appetite to leverage it, we don't necessarily have, we're not dialed into their smartphones in the way these users are to their apps. And I, I'm i speculating and guessing that that was, a lot of that was in play here. It's also worth noting, the unions and the labor community didn't really run a strong opposition campaign. They spent very little money. It was right at the end when they realized like, oh crap, we're going to lose by a lot. The platform spent a lot of money, they communicated, but there wasn't a, a big opposition campaign. So they had kind of a clean run of things with a, with a lot of their, uh, with a lot of the users. And
0: I think that also was, uh, was at play here as well. Yeah, I just find it interesting, you know, so obviously, you know, let's assume the data is correct. Well has a lot of learnings for what's gonna happen in Massachusetts in November with that ballot initiative it has a lot of learnings for legislators that have to, you know, kind of reassess the political calculation. If strong liberal democrat assembly member in New Jersey or House member in Massachusetts is gonna, you know, fight hard on this issue they they need to know that a a significant segment of their support is on the other side. I think it changes that calculation a lot from a legislative perspective and and of course from a you know fundraising what what your rhetoric is on the issue and how do you how do you soften and tone that rhetoric because you don't want to be theoretically legislating against one of your 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 core constituencies. So just kind of fascinating data. You and I love a good study. Tells you what we do in our social lives that we love these studies. But um Franklin, to your earlier question, it's at progresschamber.org. Progresschamber.org. It'll be on the website. You can have that study. If It's only 14 pages. So, you know, that means it only took me about seven hours to read. So, it's a barn burner. Well, Franklin, it's that time of the week. It's time for the Starbucks watch the weekly update of what is going on in the most significant union organizing campaign, probably in the history of the restaurant industry. What happened this week? How many new Starbucks are on the board in play? Well, you won, Joe, in in the the Price is Right
1: game. I'm on my good friend's site at perfectunion.us. Yet again, hat tip to you guys for, for everything you're doing. I have 79 entries. So that includes a bunch of announced but hasn't filed. I read somewhere it's 71 filed. Um, let me see if I can count these up one two three.
0: and last week we were talking about would it make 60 right So we were talking about whether would it make 60 this week and it's closer to 80 is is so that just tells you how powerful Franklin as I said a couple weeks ago a lot of those elections are going to happen here in the next week or two because the time frame from the the original you know the original 20 filings is is approaching. Frank, on, on a related note, this week, in seven employees at a Memphis Starbucks were terminated because of a interview, a local television interview they did uh, with a station in Memphis. It happened, the interview itself happened about a month ago, and they were terminated by Starbucks because they conducted the interview in the restaurant after closing time, and. Violated a bunch of security and you know the protocols and so forth uh, of the restaurant company. They were terminated. The unions crying retaliation. The unions crying foul. What do you do in that situation? You're a corporate person. You know, if if on the one hand, if if you've terminated somebody or people in the past for breaking these same rules, and you don't terminate these people for that, you've got a lawsuit on your hand. And then on the other hand, you're in the middle of this union fight and. Doing this, you know, is going to bring wrath from the unions and highlight all this stuff and charges of union busting and all that. you kind of darned if you do and darned if you don't. What, what would you be doing in that situation if you were the chief decision maker at Starbucks?
1: So when I first saw the Steve Greenhouse tweet, that's how I
0: first became aware of it. You know,
1: Steve Greenhouse, the dean of all things labor, former New York Times reporter, just filleting Starbucks and the situation in Memphis that they fired – these union organizers in retaliation. My initial gut was, oh my gosh, Starbucks screwed up. And if you Google Memphis and Starbucks and union or whatever, you know, you'll know, you see all the headlines. It's really interesting to look at all the headlines and how they're written differently depending on the outlet. I love Vice News. I would encourage you to go read the Vice News piece on this because I thought it was pretty balanced reporting. They kind of were... It did not come across on the Starbucks side, but it had more details in there of what exactly transpired than any of the other outlets. And after I read that, I was like, Starbucks absolutely made the only decision they could, because at the end of the day, first off, they fired basically the core of the union organizing effort in Memphis. Five, of the,
0: five of the six leaders of the effort. On the, on the organizing committee were five of the. It was a six-person organizing committee. Five of them were fired, and then an additional two employees that, were fired. That's that's what
1: melted down the internet. That right. that that and understandably so. That that's immediately, you know, oh, they were looking for calls to fire these union organizers. Da 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 da. And their point was that they had it's common for workers to be in the location after hours or after they clock out, even though technically they're not allowed to be like they hang around. They all go out to, you know, for a coffee or a beer or whatever together. That that, that's not uncommon. And that's what they were fired for, except for the fact that they had a TV camera in there with a news crew. So at the end of the day, no company can allow workers after hours to go hold press conferences in their locations and get interviewed you just can't do that i mean that's that's not allowable you know and so they had no really choice in my mind assuming this these are the facts right these are the facts we picked up through the press and da da da. so you know big big assumption there but from what i'm reading yet again vice news did i think a really good breakdown of exactly what happened in that location what led to the disciplining and the, the ultimately firing um, the company had to take some action. Now, you could argue that they they took maybe they fired some and not others, and you know we can nitpick and split hairs over that. But they had to take action against these employees, even if they had just done like a TV interview for you know selling cookies for the Girl Scouts instead of like a union drive. Even if they had done that after store hours in a location without the blessing of you know management or the company, you just can't allow that. That's the bottom line and that's clearly articulated in company policy. So, yeah, I mean, assuming the information that's out there, clearly the workers weren't allowed to be doing that and, you know, as, assuming they were all fired for that, I don't feel like the company had much of a choice if that fact pattern is correct as it was kind of as we just described it. Now, the NLRB is going to have something to say about it. So, the NLRB seems to be siding with the workers now they have gone to federal court to immediately reinstate the workers which is like short-circuiting the process it, it, it shows a level of intensity and commitment from the general counsel that may be a slightly atypical for them to for the general counsel to go to federal court for immediate reinstatement the NRB could take a more deliberate slow process and try to work it out itself so the at first blush it would appear that the NLRB is siding with the workers and viewing this as retaliation from the employer. We will see how it all sorts out. NLRB, the courts, they're all going to have a say over this. And I suspect more facts will probably come out too. But this is Starbucks world and life now, man. Like a bunch of tough decisions every day and now 70-some locations. No matter what you decide, it's not going to be a good outcome. That's the world they live in today.
0: And I'm just fascinated, you know. As I've said many times, I, I, the, the that that corporate decision making table and arguing both sides and playing devil's advocate, and I could I could argue passionately on both sides of of this ledger. Uh, but to your point, I think Starbucks had really no choice; it was to do the right thing and just take the heat. I don't know how you just said it, but you said it well. It's, this is every day of their life now. Every day of their life, every decision, no matter if they go left, go right, go up or down, is going to be chainsawed that they should have done the other thing. And so that's, that's the world they live in. And, and you have to get thin skin, you know, and the, the Walmarts yeah. of the world got thin skin and the tobacco folks have thin, uh, thick skin. I mean, thick skin. Walmart has thick skin and banks have thick skin. They just got to grow some thick skin to navigate these waters in the next few months going forward for sure.
1: Yep. They're, they're going to have to sort this stuff out and then move forward with the confidence and these tough decisions, they made the right decision. And unabashedly defend it and explain it and just keep your head down and keep moving forward. And that's not like a natural posture for a lot of folks. That's not a natural posture for for a lot of companies. And I got a feeling like the folks that, you know, that at Starbucks, there's not a lot of people in there that are used to that have the battle scars of political campaigns, big knockdown, drag out fights, but that's, that's the world they're operating in now.
0: It's time for the legislative scorecard. We'll go around the country and update you on the latest legislative and regulatory developments in Franklin. Anything else you want to add to the COVID conversation after the conversation we just had about democrat governors kind of pumping the brakes on that. Uh, it's just amazing how quickly kind of the politics and
1: and everything changed. The science has changed. You know, we are in a, a different spot now and but it's just amazing how quickly things can change. I saw one one last thing I will say, Joe, I saw some political consultants in the context of this conversation talking about how they didn't even think that, you know, COVID and the pandemic would be a reelection issue for Biden. And they didn't even think it may be a defining issue in the midterms. They're like, it wasn't really a defining issue in in the Yunkin campaign. It impacted economy and education, some of these other issues, but those were the defining issues, not COVID. And, And I was like, wow, I, I, maybe I agree with that. Maybe I can see that if no new variants emerge. But it's just amazing how quickly the the,
0: the page turns. Franklin, uh, speaking of turning pages or turning back the page, uh, you remember early in the Biden administration, we were talking about would Joe Manchin give in and, and allow and vote for a $15 minimum wage. And after that whole effort kind of imploded, we haven't heard much about the $15 minimum wage, but activists have put it back on the map. There was a rally outside the U.S. Capitol in D.C. What was the message, Franklin? The message were was One Fair Wage,
1: baby. Calling on the Senate to pass a Raise the Wage Act, $15 an hour for all workers. The Restaurant Opportunity Center, the, their their sister group, One Fair Wage. Man, remember the days when a, a protest by One Fair Wage would be the big news for like a month? Like I can't even can't even remember those days.
0: Sounds so little league right now, based on what's going on. Like it really does. Yeah. So Franklin, we talked about the uh, the, the, how quickly the new California paid supplemental paid leave bill went through the process. And we talked about fast track and the governor already signed it this week, right? Yeah, man. Done deal. Done deal.
1: Businesses with 26 or more employees who test positive for the virus or have to care for a family member that does get up two weeks of supplemental leave, retroactive uh, back to January 1, also provides up to 40 hours of additional paid leave and another 40 hours of a worker or family member test positive. So it's a big comprehensive uh, umbrella here. And we continue to have conversations at the federal level. Depending on how those go will impact whether or not there's five other states that follow California.
0: In my home state of Maryland, crab kicks and football had a hearing this week on their potential paid and family uh, medical leave bill.
1: Yeah, this is the pretty standard at this point, 12 weeks of paid family medical leave. We're watching it because, you know, this is something that could advance in Maryland. We'll have to we'll have to see how it shakes out.
0: Frank, on switching to labor policy, president's task force uh, that we've been talking about for a long time, co-chaired by the, the vice president and the secretary of labor, their uh, big task force on worker organizing and empowerment. We thought their, lo- their study would come out and like, December or January, it finally came out their big seventy recommendations. What was in that report, and more importantly, what should restaurant owners and operators really key in on? So
1: this is this is focused at, at federal workers and contractors. So just right off the bat. But we should be paying attention. This is the union agenda. It's the union wish list. It's seventy pages of union wish list items they want to accomplish, and so this is their political priority. So it's informative, and, and everybody should at least read some of the coverage of it or top items because it's informative in what the union is really prioritizing and focusing on. Not a lot of this is going to really apply to us immediately, in, in, unless you're like operating in a federal base or you know a federal. Uh, Property or asset, some of this may apply to you. Then, but it's it's a whole bunch of crazy stuff. I mean, you know, it advances union organizing in some pretty dramatic ways. Own kind of federal, it makes a bunch of recommendations, some of which have been followed through with executive orders as it relates to federal contractors. But this is the whole wish list of items. Expect that the Biden administration is going to work down this list one by one by one, and required of federal workers, and then try to embed this, sneak it into legislation, as we saw with the Competes Act last week, where they slid an amendment last last minute straight out of the PRO Act. We're going to see this stuff kind of working its way into agency action and into legislation for the remainder of Biden's term.
0: And frankly we just did a, a very quick update on the status of the Starbucks campaign, but the uh, talk about piling on, their hometown city council, the city council, the Seattle city council, oh. kneecapped, just kneecapped their big, famous homegrown company. What did what did the Seattle city council do this week?
1: I can't believe we forgot about that because that was the other just kind of amazing thing that happened this week in the Starbucks rundown. Totally notable because this is where... The, the union organizing your store intersects with the public affairs and government relations space where they're going to go to their allies in government at the local and state level and hand them baseball bats to club you in the legs. And that's basically what happened in their in their hometown. We have. Uh, what's her name? Sawant. What's 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 her name? The the socialist city councilwoman. It's the first socialist elected to the city council, and since then it's like old news. Now there's a hundred elected across the country, but she she led the charge. It's a non-binding resolution, but yeah, it's a reputational blow in your backyard. It is reminiscent of kind of the Amazon. You know, Seattle's been like the fair-haired darling of the progressive set, and even a, in, in Seattle forever. And Amazon was for a little while too, and then it, you know that that all turned. And now, now they're just clubbing them, man. You know, this was a this is a non-binding resolution, but it was passed unanimously. No one raised their hand and defended Starbucks, and that's again. We said it earlier. We'll say it again now. That's the world they live in now. It's yeah. just. They couldn't get anyone on their hometown city council to stand up for them. You know, that's, that's, just, that's tough,
0: man. I, you know, I, you know, I mean, I don't know where to start on that one, but basically the, the, the council passed a resolution and the quote is expressing the council's support for workers at Starbucks in Seattle who are attempting to form a union. If I were the executive team of Starbucks, I would be looking at all my external affairs people and say, what in the hell are you doing? We, we can't even get our anyone on the Seattle city council to stand up and say something nice about our company. I mean, I, I just found it. I, I just trying to go through like, could that ever happen to inspire in Atlanta? Could that ever happen to Duncan in Boston? Could that ever happen, you know, to cheesecake factory in Los Angeles? I just, I, I just can't fathom how that could ever could that happen to Darden in Orlando. It's like, no, uh, it just—it was fascinating to me, and, and it had to be a humiliating uh, event. In a related note, Franklin—they also passed a resolution uh, endorsing card check as a way to bypass these long and costly union elections. So it was pretty, pretty active resolution day at the Seattle City Council this week. Yeah, I mean that just—that stings in the backyard.
1: I mean the pride of Seattle, man. Yeah. Like you, you get off the you get off the airplane in Seattle, and people are throwing Starbucks coffee at you. You know, it's yeah. got to be like front and center at every. It's the pride of the city, and it uh, and has been, and and that just to, that's just that stings,
0: yeah. yeah. Well, speaking of stinking, Franklin landfills, recycling, extended producer responsibility, Hawaii's moving toward a, a bill of their own. Yes, and we're not talking about
1: minimum wage in Hawaii today. So the latest was the House, as you predicted last week. By the way, slowing it down, Joe. So we're heading into the famous Hawaii uh,
0: stroll, if you will. Your alma mater uh, is North Carolina's mm-hmm. famous Four Corners defense.
1: Yeah. So, but a House Committee advanced legislation establishing extended producer responsibility. The bill would require certain producers of consumer goods to register with the state health department, pay a fee, deposit fees. Look, it's another state that's looking at this. It's, it, it's another state added to the long list. We got to get some model policy because they're going to be another state by the end of this month and another state next month. And, you know, this this stuff's advancing. So um, it's time to get involved. And I would say, like, places like Hawaii are are probably going to be out front because, you know, there's real sensitivities there, environmental reasons, but also they need to be recycling everything. It's hard to get stuff there. So it's, it's an ideal place for this thing to advance relatively quickly.
0: And our last item, Franklin, we reported last week, uh, what's going on in Florida with the targeting of woke corporate diversity training. That bill moved it moved a little farther down the process so it was this week in Florida.
1: Yeah, I think it's on the House floor, headed to the House floor. Holy crud. Florida is a crazy legislative session. And the craziest stuff, we're in the national news like every other week for what's going on in a Florida legislative session. And that's not even some of the most controversial stuff. But this is one. It's like kind of going through the process and we'll get over the finish line. We'll see what it looks like, but they are still calling out corporate programs and still naming names. Google's one of them of corporate programs that are in conflict with this legislation. So that's not, that's still like front and center in this conversation. It's like a a side piece. I mean, the main thrust is in the education system, but they're clearly targeting woke corporations as well. And so companies should, should pay attention to this.
0: Well, that's a busy scorecard for the week, and we'll have another robust report uh, for our audience next week. Well, Franklin, it's an unbelievable weekend. We've got Valentine's on Monday, but there's a little, there's a little, little fracas on Sunday evening uh, between the Bengals and the Rams for the Super Bowl. What will, be, what will you be doing for Super Bowl? I will probably be in my
1: jam-jams watching and falling asleep. You were one Yeah. I'm not big on the I'm not huge on the Super Bowl parties. You know, the pandemic, like I know we're over it, but kind of anyway, I I don't think we're gonna do anything. I think we're just gonna we're gonna hang out. I'm not a big NFL guy anyway, so probably going to be on the on the couch slash in the bed. Uh, what about yourself? You got big big plans?
0: You know, I'm just going to be over at the coast this weekend, so I'm, I'll be, find a, find a little speakeasy or I may just watch it on the oh, board. That's Who
1: right. Knows. That's right. Your polka your polka lunch. I yeah, forgot.
0: Yeah, I forgot yeah, season. so it'll be a seaside Super Bowl for me. Frank, on two things of note before we go, in the industry will be well represented in the famous Super Bowl commercials. One is for One of our key suppliers, Stella Artois, is having an amazing promotion where Eli Manning, famous Giants quarterback, is buying a ticket for five employees in a restaurant to send them to the Super Bowl. And he is taking their shifts on Super Bowl Sunday. So Eli Manning will be in a restaurant working. Dan Marino is doing the same thing, a couple other players. So can you imagine you're sitting in a restaurant up at the bar and it's Dan Marino serving you? And so, he yeah. I think it's a super cool. to Sending some restaurant workers to the Super Bowl, and they're taking their shifts on probably one of the hardest restaurant dates of the year. So it'll be a, probably an eye-opening experience for all those guys. Pretty cool. That will be a disaster. Nobody's gonna get their
1: food, but yeah. they'll all be okay with it too.
0: No, I'll be perfectly fine with it. And the second piece, uh, there is a Hellman's commercial that you need to catch. That is addressing the issue of food waste in a p- pretty funny way, bringing back kind of a play. There's a Los Angeles Rams. Linebacker named Jared Mayo, and he it kind of reprises the role of Terry Tate, office linebacker, was famous Super Bowl commercial of years past, and is on guard against food waste and tackling people that are wasting food. and Hellman's is making a comedic yet political statement in the in the area of food waste. What do you think? I'll
1: tell you, I'll tell you what, Joe. We are America, right? I mean, this is it. Restaurant industry front and center, front center in the pandemic. We've got all these famous quarterbacks taking we've got food waste commercials i mean america is restaurants and restaurants are america it's never been more clear to me
0: and last thing who you pulling for rams or Bengals?
1: i'm gonna go for the rams just because you know just because you know they they deserve it they you know the kind of new team right like you know whatever i'm going for the rams for no real reason but
0: yeah that's who i'm going for And, and, and not to be argumentative i'm for the almost the exact same reasons going going with the, the the Bengals. neither of them have ever won a super bowl the Bengals have just been in in, in purgatory for 25 or 30 years i just you know as a bleeding heart i just got to go with the Bengals. just yeah you know, get get them off the schneid a little bit but uh so it should be interesting i hope everybody has a great and happy valentine's super bowl weekend valentine's and we'll be back next week with another edition of working lunch until then stay safe and stay informed